Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Saturday to you. This is Cliff, your host of Earth Ancients. It's August the 23rd, and we're almost finished with August. Can't believe how quickly the month's been going by. It seems like every day is going quicker and quicker. I hope you're having a good day. Um, As always, we do a quick review of kind of current events, and um, I have been posting... um, about, about a month ago, I found the archives of uh, Linda Sheely, who died in the late 1980s. She was a well-known uh, Mayanist, an archaeologist, who took a number of amazing photographs of, at that time, the known ruins throughout uh, Yucatan and Central America. A number of the photographs uh, show... Uh, stonework and building and construction and archaeology that has never been published. And I don't know of any publisher who has seen any of these, and so we're privileged to be able to post them uh, because I'm a member of the Mayan Institute in Miami. They, As a member, I get to post them, and I, I actually asked them if, if it was okay to do that. But uh, if you take a look 
on the Facebook page, Earth Ancients uh, Facebook, you will see some of the most incredible sculptures that are out there. Um, I posted a series called uh, an, uh, an Ancient Mayan World Comes to Light on the 19th. And uh, there is a number of uh, standing stele that in there. And one in particular, the main central photograph, um, has a uh, series of stones that uh, at one time uh, were considered uh, quite unusual. In fact, I've tried to look around and see uh, uh, the actual uh, the different photographs. They're from Copan in Honduras. And the top of this one standing stone has the appearance of gears. You know, archaeologists like to say, archaeologists like to tell us that those are just uh, symbology, but it's a, it's a definite wheel, and it's beautifully, beautifully carved, and, and it's one of the most intricate designs I've, I think I've ever seen on a standing stone uh, marker. It has no writing on it whatsoever, but uh, uh, Linda Sheely took these photographs like in 1979, and to date, these are not available to the general public to look at. So have a look at them. Uh, the first photograph is of this unusual stone gear work. The second and third photographs are of these um, wall figurines, and uh, they're like goblins or, or uh, uh, creatures of the night or something, but um, quite unusual, quite quite uh, uh, fun to look at. Uh, not available to the general public. I don't know where they went. Um, uh, they're possibly in some small museum somewhere. Um, but uh, when you go to the Yucatan Peninsula or any Mayan site, uh, what you're seeing is a consolidation and just a small portion of you know what they're what they've uncovered. Most Mayan sites are a f you know a fraction of the full city. Uh, I think the average is 15 percent has been excavated and consolidated. And Copan is one of those fantastic, very, very old cities that go back into prehistory. Um, we now know that the Maya were contemporaries of the Olmec, and the Olmec are thought to have, uh, have an inception date of about 2000 BC or 1900 BC, but it keeps going further and further back. So anyhow, take a look at that, Linda Sheely. And the other area... Uh, there's a couple areas I'm going to mention today on Facebook. One is the um, posting called The Curious Stone Yoke of Mesoamerican Culture. And yokes are, stone yokes are, uh, I mean, we're told that they were used in the ball games, the Mayan and Mesoamerican ball games. And I have a hard time believing that that's possible because if you look at these yokes, and I've, I think I've, I've listed, uh, i got like 12 here, their average weight is between 80 and 100 pounds of, of solid granite. And uh, how you're able to move around with an extra 100 pounds of weight and use those for uh, a ball uh, reflection or a deflection is beyond me. And uh, uh, I, I still don't have... Uh, you know, a good explanation for why they would be considered uh, used on a uh, in a ball game. <laughs> if you look at the main photograph, uh, 
uh, posted on Facebook. That is uh, a solid piece of granite. It's a ring. There's not even an opening on it. And it looks like it was made for a small child, but obviously it looks like it it probably weighs about over 100 pounds, probably more like 150. Uh, So it's a curious. The the yolks are very, very, very curious. Um, And I have a suspicion that there's something to do with with, uh, electromagnetics. Now, uh, I've talked a number of times about uh, the research uh, the researcher John Burke, who wrote the book um, uh, on the seed propagation, and he has uh, actually, uh, as I mentioned before, he passed away, but he left quite a bit of documentation uh, on the pyramids and the telluric energy that is uh, channeled up through these pyramids and, uh, and then moving out through the pyramids in some manner that we don't know about. But um, there's, I feel there's a connection with these these yokes, and um, we'll, we hopefully we'll have somebody uh, to clarify this for us in in the near future. Uh, I also want to mention um, that I've actually posted quite a bit of data on Mars, and uh, uh, our guest today will be you know speaking directly to us about Mars, but. Um, since the publication of, uh, of uh, various photographs and imagery from Mars, a lot of these uh, images have been refined and clarified. And um, a couple of days ago, on the 21st, I published a series of photographs from the Cydonia uh, region that are probably the best images you'll, you, I mean, you'll ever see. They're just fascinating. And... Um, you know, you can you can take a look at them and open them up and and really uh, see firsthand some of the best images uh, that have been published to date. And I also want to point your uh, your eyes and have you take a look at the posting for August 17th, which is an image that came up uh, more recently. It's the title of that uh, series of photos is called the Earth Mars Connection. And this image that uh, is up here is is the most convincing um, structure that is sphinx-like, and um, it, it actually has the uh, body, uh, it has the front paws, it even has head and a headdress. And below it, I've posted the sphinx that you can find in the Giza Plateau. Um, and I think you'll see the similarities. Now, uh, I don't know. Uh, our guest today maybe be, may, can maybe tell us if we've had some more imaging done of this area, but uh, uh, it's an amazing photograph. And um, uh, have a look at it and, and see what you think. Now, our guest today is uh, Mike Barra, and Mike has done quite a bit of work uh, when it comes to the subject of of, uh, of Mars, and um, Mike's a, a New York Times best-selling author, he's a lecturer and a TV personality, and um, he began writing 25 years ago uh, as an engineer consult. Well, he spent more than 25 years as an engineering consultant, and I guess he started his writing career. Uh, Right, right about after that, I'll we'll ask him about it. Um, 
His first book was with Richard Hoagland, and that book was Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA, and it went on to become a, a New York Times bestseller. Um, he has also published two books, and we'll talk about those today, uh, Ancient Aliens on the Moon, and then the newest book is Ancient Aliens on Mars uh, 2, I guess, Part 2. So he's written two different books. Um, Mike's made numerous appearances on, um, on TV and, and radio. Uh, he lectures regularly. Uh, he's on Coast to Coast with George Norrie quite a bit. And he's on the Ancient Aliens uh, program. So, uh, Mike, how are you? I'm I'm really doing great today, Cliff. How are you? I'm good. Great to have you on the program. Um, I I'm really curious um, how a aerospace consultant, uh, an engineer, would uh, find this material uh, of interest and and actually get to the point where. Uh, you actually co-wrote that amazing book with Richard Hoagland. Can you tell us a little bit about how you and, and, and Richard Hoagland got together to write that book and what your interest is? Yeah, sure. That's a that's a, a fun story. Um, first of all, I wanted to ask you did you did you get your your review copy of the new book yet? I did get it. I got it yesterday, and it Good. looks great. I yeah. had a chance to look at it. So. Thank yeah, you. it's a little late to a little late to be uh, to do show prep with it, but I'm glad you finally got it. Um, yeah, well, no. what I wanted to th- that story is kind of interesting. You know, I've always from the time I was a young boy, I would watch the space launches, and I just I mean, as far back as I can remember, since I was three, four, five, six years old, I was fascinated with space and aliens and and alien life and all that stuff. And you know, it may. As I said on another show the other night, it may have had something to do with Angela Cartwright as Penny Robinson on Lost in Space. <laughs> that, that may have been something to do with my interest as a young boy. But, you know, uh, I, I watched that show and I watched the original Star Trek. And, and during that whole period, um, I was always just really uh, – there's just a part of me that just didn't believe I was seeing that they were showing us everything. There was something that just felt secretive about it. And I remember – really distinctly um, on July 20th, 1969, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were walking on the moon for the first time, that incredible day and, and night that I'll never forget, and um, asking my dad, who worked at Boeing, you know, he's an executive of Boeing, and um, asking him, well, you know, Dad, we have a color TV, and we were one of the people that was fortunate enough to have a color TV in 1969, I guess. And, uh, you know, why are they, why is this only in black and white? Why, why don't, uh, isn't there color television? Why are we only getting black and white? And he said, well, you know, son, I really, I really don't know. I, I would think they could have had a color TV camera. And, and later on when we were writing Dark Mission, you know, I found out that not only did they have a color camera, they had an excellent color camera, really superb color television camera that, that they were ordered, literally ordered and was reinforced by NASA before they separated from the command module, that it would be left on the command module and not brought to the moon with them. So I guess that in the end, I have felt like my suspicions were, were well-founded because I, I think ultimately the reason why that, that, uh, that was left on board is because they were very concerned about what you might be able to see in the background 
I think they expected to find artifacts, and we can talk about that a little bit later. And so that's why they, they did it. They took the crappiest possible camera to the moon that they, that they absolutely could and, and wanted to, you know, mm. to make really sure that there wasn't something going on out over the live broadcast that they couldn't retract. So, um, so you know, I kind of grew up with that attitude and experience, and I was always interested in UFOs. I watched all the great shows from the 70s, you know, in search of. I, I told Eric right. von Daniken when I finally met him a couple of weeks ago that I, I you know, I, I saw In Search of Ancient Astronauts um, back in the day in 1972 in a movie theater with some of my friends. And, and then I began to get fascinated. I remember the face on Mars from 1976, the Viking missions, and I kind of got interested in that in the early 90s again because I thought, you know, the difference between this and UFO sightings is that this is something that you could really theoretically put your finger on. You should be able to, you know, go there, take more pictures, um, actually, you know, make be able something you could you could prove you could you could have some solidity to it you know this we could prove whether this was an ancient artifact or not or any of the other objects around it by simply taking really good pictures little did i know what a problem that would ultimately be but um so then around 1992 i'm, I'm working at boeing and it's lunchtime you know one day and i i'm walking past this this room and i see a whole bunch of my coworkers in this room and they're watching something on, on a video screen in there on a, on a TV. It's in a, in a conference room. And I go in there and I open the door and look and there is this guy on TV. And this guy is Richard C. Hoagland. And this is his UN video that he's put ah, And okay. his UN speech. And I sat down and I was fascinated because every single time, you know, he would say something and I would sit there in my mind and I'd be like, well, but wait a minute, what about, and before I could even get the question out, he would be answering that next question that I had. And it went on like wow. this for, for two hours. And well, not that I spent the entire two hours, you know, not working. But, I mean, when I ultimately right. got my own copy of the tape, the whole speech was like that. And I thought, this is a guy who thinks a lot of the, along the same way that I do. He asks the same questions. He, he does ask questions. He, he, you know, he's skeptical about th things at first. And then he works his way through the process and ultimately comes to a conclusion. And so, you know, I... Uh, I, that was kind of the extent of it. I became more interested in the face on Mars. I started, I think I read his book. I, I read some other stuff. Uh, and then in the mid-90s, back when he first started his website, when websites were first a, a thing, you know, um, I was actually on a conference uh, there, the conference that he used to have, the bulletin board. And uh, Ken Johnston, who was working with him at the time, said, hey, Mike, my, I posted something. And Ken said, came in and said, hey, Mike, my, my wife, Fran, Fran, thinks that she worked with you with Boeing back in 1991, and I went, yeah, I remember Fran, and so we, you know, through Ken, I met Richard, and ah. ultimately met Richard, and then, you know, I, I got his phone number, and, and I would call him once in a while about stuff, and and he was always gracious and generous with his time, and then finally, I, you know, I asked him one, one day after the Mars Global Surveyor stuff had first come out, the first images of the face, I said, you know, do you want an article on image enhancement? And he said, sure, write it up, and, and we'll see if it's, you know, let's see if it's something I want to put on the website. So I wrote it up, and I sent it to him, and he liked it. And, um, and, and then I began to write articles for his website, you know, which mm -hmm. is just really a, a fun process. And that went on for years and years until I finally said in the early 2000s, why don't we take all these articles that we've got that are spread all over the website and put them together in one 
you know, concise volume and make a book out of it. Let's do a follow-up. Ah, uh, okay. And that okay. was that was Dark Mission. So, um, unfortunately, it was right. not. <laughs> I think if I would use a word, it would be any, any word at all. Concise would not be it for Dark Mission. <laughs> it is a. It is a large. It, it's a tome. It's a tome. It's huge. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it, it's extremely thorough. In fact, uh, there's a, um, a a quote a. Uh, uh, a review by a former NASA controller who says it's one of the best uh, detailed uh, reviews of the of the of NASA that he's ever read, and he questions. <laughs> here's a guy who was a controller. He questions uh, the uh, NASA's uh, whole uh, uh, you know infrastructure, which I find is interesting. What I'm curious about, though, Mike, is is obviously if you are a uh, aerospace engineer, uh, mm-hmm. when Richard brought these questions up, you must have had questions. It, it must have given you pause to have questions too. Well, wh- wh- where was the where was the period where you began questioning uh, NASA? I mean, was it like has it always well, been something on the back of your mind, or what? What was it? What was yeah? What was the tipping point? Um, yeah, the tipping point. I, you know, you know, look, again, I, I've always, like I said, I've always had this inherent, um, I guess, distrust of authority. It's, it's, an, it's part of my makeup and, and, and the truth of authority. And, and it went all the way back to that period of the 1960s and 70s. And in, in 1996, something happened that began to really turn me into more of a conspiracy theorist, which is what, you know, I call myself a born-again conspiracy theorist. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but... Um, mm-hmm. That was the events around TWA 800, which was, I am 100% certain, shot down by a missile, and 90% certain it was one of our missiles that accidentally was test-fired and hit the, hit the aircraft. And, and I watched as that was co- covered up on television by the government, on you know government agents, on a consistent, regular, daily basis. And I, that's when I began to realize these guys are just playing, looking right into the camera and lying to us because they, they can't possibly believe this stuff. So um, that had kind of happened. And, and then what really finalized everything with me um, for NASA was the, um, was in, in the very first picture of the face on Mars that was taken by Mars Global Surveyor in 1998. It's popularly known as the Catbox image. Because the radio talk show host Art Bell that night on Coast to Coast AM said, you know, uh, it doesn't look like the face on Mars. It looks like something my kitty would scratch up in his cat box. <laughs> and, yeah. and he says, you know, and if, you, if I'm to believe this picture, Richard, then there is no face on Mars. And my question is, where the hell did it go? And, and then, you know, so that picture was put out. It was obviously dramatically altered. And then the interesting thing about that was that, that uh, exactly two minutes after all the 6 o'clock newscasts had gone off the air, and back in the, the late 90s, that's still where 90% of Americans got their news, was from ABC, NBC, and CBS, their nightly newscasts, they, CNN also. They all covered mm-hmm. it. They all dismissed it based on this terrible, terrible, awful picture, which we've now found out was, a, in fact, a deliberate fraud. And two minutes after those broadcasts ended, they released a better enhancement, which, you know, still was not a great picture, but showed it clearly in much better light than the one that they had released during the day. And that's when I realized this was all political. It was all planned. 
It was designed this way. Um, one of the one NASA scientist who was not speaking in his official capacity for NASA, quote unquote, said, "Well, I hope we've scotched this thing for good." And I and I realized then that that was the intent. They, that their intent from the beginning, and by the creation of this this fraudulent image, this fraudulent version of of a, of a real image, was designed purposely to um, keep people from from looking at the face, looking at Sidonia, considering the possibility of artificiality. And, you know, I realized it had all been carefully planned inside the offices of NASA. And that's when I was like, okay, these guys are, well, there's a word for it. I'm not going to use it, but I didn't like those guys very much. And that's when uh, I, I really, that was the flip, that was the tipping point for me where at that point, you know, for, ever since then, I've never trusted anything that NASA says about anything. If NASA said, okay. you know, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, I would, I would start digging into it. Let's, let's touch on let, let's touch on this real quickly, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on on that. I mean, on, on why NASA is doing this, but uh, Cydonia is is an amazing place. Uh, I know Richard Hoagland. I have had him uh, at a number of conferences I used to produce, and mm-hmm. his material is very convincing. But I'd like to hear from you: Why would a space agency uh, cover up these immense structures uh, from the public. As an example, the DNM pyramid from whatever miles up its photograph, satellite photograph image, is an obvious pyramid. I mean, it's the most convincing structure I've ever seen. So why, why does NASA want to claim it is natural and that there's it's not man-made why why wouldn't they want to say look we've discovered evidence of another civilization and oh by the way they could have been on earth you know what i mean mm-hmm. so what, what do you what do you what's your what do you tell us really quick not too long i mean it's you could go on uh, we could do a whole show on that <laughs> why nasa is covering things up but right but what is your opinion um, well it, it's it, there's two pieces to it the the first is the Brookings Report, which NASA commissioned. The very first thing that NASA ever did as a functioning governmental agency, um, and, and by the way, it's a division of the Department of, the Defense, of Defense. It's not a civilian science agency. The first thing they ever did was commission this Brookings Report. And if you go online, just type in the Brookings Report and read it, what it essentially says is that you probably aren't going to meet ET when you go out and, and start exploring the solar system, but there's a really good chance you could find artifacts. You could find things like the face on Mars or the DNM pyramid, you know, objects that will be clear indications of uh, artificial, prior artificial inhabitants, constructions, you know, in the solar system from somebody who was here before. And it said right in there that, that if people were to become aware of this, society would, quote, unquote, probably disintegrate, to use exactly the the word that they used. It would devastate our culture. It would destroy our economy. It would, you know, be a a tremendously negative impact on scientists and engineers who think that they're the be-all, end-all of everything, and and it would be culturally devastating to us. So it Mm -hmm. recommended that you should seriously think about this before you would reveal any information of that type because of the tremendously deleterious effects it could have on our culture. And that's, that's actually right in the, um, 
right in the report itself. And in fact, you know, that's what 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Kubrick film, the great classic Kubrick science fiction film, is all based on the Brookings mm-hmm. report. It's, it's, it's a metaphor for Brookings. So right. you have that reason. The reason is, let's say that they actually do make that announcement, Cliff, and they come out and they say, well, you know, we've discovered ruins, evidence of, of um, you know, a, 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 the existence of a ancient, highly advanced extraterrestrial civilization on the planet Mars. And then they go to take questions. What's the first question going to be? The first question is going to be, well, okay, they're, they were ancient. They were far more advanced than us. They lived on Mars, but they don't live, it's like they don't live there anymore. The first mm-hmm. question that I'm going to ask is, what happened to them? And if the answer is, and I believe that this is the answer, if the answer is that this vast civilization existed on Mars, but Mars used to orbit another large planet, probably a super-Earth, which blew up, it was destroyed. It either was destroyed or it, it, it blew up in a, in a natural catastrophe and mm-hmm. wiped that civilization out. You can't tell people that. I mean, are you seriously going to tell people, well, it was destroyed in some sort of solar system-wide cataclysm because then everybody's going to go, well, if that can happen to Mars, why couldn't it happen to the Earth? Well, the answer is that it could. And mm-hmm. again, that's going to have very deleterious effects on our civilization and our culture in general. So that's about as short okay. an answer as I can that's good. Yeah, I like I that. And, 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 <laughs> um, our, uh, uh, Earth Ancients is focused on ancient civilization on Earth, and I think I, I kind of clued you in on that ahead of time. It's not that I don't believe in aliens. In fact, I'm very much in, interested mm-hmm. in the UFO phenomena, but uh, there's just growing evidence that there was a civilization on Mars that built the pyramids, that built this, uh, looks like a sphinx that I, I posted. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I guess the question for you is, in your research, Mike, have you, do you find a connection between these ruins, uh, these structures on Mars, and uh, let's just say for now the Giza Plateau with uh, the sphinx, the pyramids, and some of the megaliths that are there, like the Osirian uh, at uh, Abydos, those right. megalithic, yeah. monstrous, monstrous, uh, five, six hundred ton uh, blocks that build this very unusual uh, and very old structure. Uh, do you find any parallels? Yeah, I do. And, and actually, you know, Cliff, I I have to say that my perspective is I I draw a line between extraterrestrial and alien. To me, mm-hmm. the term extraterrestrial means not on Earth. It simply means we're looking at something that's not on the planet Earth. It does not make a comment on who built that stuff and what the origin of it is. Alien to me means literally alien. It means a, a different race that is probably not genetically related to us in, in a, any specific way. So when okay. I look at the architecture on the planet Mars, when I look at the architecture on the moon, I mean, I have this other book, Ancient Aliens on the Moon, um, I, what I see is what appears to be human concepts of engineering. In other words, the architecture looks like the kind of stuff we would build only on a much larger scale if we had massively better technology or greater knowledge of how to manipulate the environment. This is the stuff that we would build. We would build these monuments because they, they look like the same kind of stuff we build on Earth. And again, it comes back to the start of this whole thing, which was really the face on Mars, 
which is at least half human. Some people argue, Richard argues, that it's half human and half feline. He may be right. It may be that the so-called feline side is, is more eroded than the, uh, than the human side. But why would aliens build a visage of a human face on another planet if humans are from mm-hmm. Earth? And, and so what I think and my conclusion is, is that, that what we're looking at here is a prior, highly advanced, human or humanoid civilization from the far distant past. I think that, that it's, it's very likely, and people like Michael Tellinger do a great job with this in his presentations. I think what we're looking at is we're looking at some prior, very, very highly advanced human civilization that may have risen up on Earth, gone to these other worlds, built all this stuff, and, and then were, you know, knocked back into the Stone Age by whatever this, this cataclysm was, which, again, I think was probably the, the devastation and destruction of Planet 5 or, or Maldek, the planet the Mars is orbiting. Or the other mm-hmm. possibility is that, is that the civilizations actually started on Mars, and because of what happened to Mars, then had to come to Earth and ended up, you know, growing up into the, the human civilizations that we now see. So, you know, again, if you look at things like the Hopi prophecies, which I wrote about in my second book, The Choice, um, you know, they call this the, the fourth world of man, I believe. This is the fourth human world that's right. existed. And they say the third world was, was a lot like this one, only, only they, they, had, they were significantly technologically more advanced. They invented things and discovered things that we haven't yet, you know, been able to do in, in our world. So, you know, a lot of this stuff could be their ruin. So that would, that would be a good reason why you would have connections between, um, you know, monuments on Mars and monuments on the Earth. Mm -hmm. Now, have you been able to uh, look through any of the Mars imagery to find um, megalithic structures that have similarities uh, it seems to me that the pre-dynastic people that build this, like the Osarian and, and maybe the Sphinx, the Sphinx enclosure, and so, some of those temples are, uh, have blocks that weigh hundreds of tons. Um, is it a possibility mm-hmm. in your mind that, that th- there is a similar type of structure, uh, structures found on Mars? And, and can you identify any specific areas or is it just too far out uh, because of the imagery to, to make that kind of assessment? No, I, I don't think so. I think you can look at the DNM and say that it's a pentagonal pyramid. It's got, got two axes of symmetry, one that was established by Errol Torin back in the late 1980s and one that was revealed by the um, Mars Odyssey imagery from the, um, the early 2000s. So I, I think that that's, you know, there's clearly a connection there. Um, and uh, what I would actually suggest if we could do this is that, um, you know, if people wanted to go to my, my website, it's, it's Mike Barra with one r.blogspot.com and, and go to the photos tab. And then mm-hmm. you can click and go to a, to a web album that I've got there, a Picasso web album. And if you go there, there's all the pictures from, from my books are on there. And if you were to okay. click on, for instance, um, um, Ancient Aliens on Mars and go to the photos that are there, you get about, about halfway down. And um, there are images of, for instance, the DNM pyramid, the so-called fortress in the city. There's also pyramids that, that are in Sidonia that look like a Mesoamerican pyramid. Um, and, and, and even further down, you see tetrahedral pyramids. But one of, my, one of my favorite ones that came out of this whole thing was that there were these uh, Chinese 
pyramids that have been discovered recently. And there's with Google Earth and stuff, people have been able to go in and actually look at uh, the different, you know, Chinese pyramids. And what we've discovered is that they are, you know, four-sided, pretty much like the Giza pyramids, and they are basically a dead ringer for um, pyramids uh, in Elysium on Mars in the region called Elysium that Carl Sagan was so fascinated by. He, he was actually pointing out three tetrahedral pyramids, but what we're talking about here is we're talking about uh, a massive four-sided pyramids, pyramid, and mm-hmm. when you overlay the Chinese pyramid with the Martian pyramid, they fit exactly. Their erosional pattern, the, the, the sagging, collapsing kind of side that goes in there, I mean, Again, you're looking at the exact same kinds of monumental architecture on two different planets, the only real difference being the scale, meaning that Mars is, you know, the the stuff on Mars is significantly bigger than the stuff on Earth, but other than that, they overlay perfectly. And if if an object exists in isolation and it's pyramidal on Earth, uh, it's pretty easy to figure out it's artificial. Why then, my question is, why then if you have the same thing on Mars, is it is the default, you know, the default go-to position that it can't possibly be artificial. So, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, again, you've got these, these monuments, these large pyramidal structures on two different worlds, the only difference being that on Mars they do seem to be significantly bigger. Hmm. Um, one of your nemesis is... Uh, is uh, I actually answer I actually answer the question, Cliff. I don't, I don't know. Did I actually answer the question? In there? I think that was pretty good. <laughs> See, when it comes to guys like you that are uh, encyclopedias of knowledge, because you've been with it so long, you know, to get that out of you is good. So I'm happy. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, right, I, I think right. that I think that gets. I don't want to it. take up too much air time. Don't want to take up too much of your no, no. air time. <laughs> no, no, no. You're good. We we, we love it. Okay. Um, and, and and for those that are archiving this, I will be. Uh, placing uh, Mike Barra's uh, web link up on the Facebook page for you to reference these photographs that he is uh, referring to. And so just go to the Facebook page. I'm going to have, uh, it's going to be called Notes from Mike Barra Interview, and I'll have the links there, and, and you can go to those pages that he's talking about. Um, the thing I want to uh, bring up again is um, uh have you run into anyone that's maybe retired from JPL or from NASA that says, yes, Mike, you, Richard, and these other uh, Mars researchers are, are right. Uh, there are these glass tunnels. There are uh, ruins. And, yes, it's true. <laughs> or will they, will, they, will they be put away quickly if that would come out? What, what, do, what do you think about that? Because I think there's well, pretty well, convincing gonna, evidence. I, yeah. Um, unfortunately, no, I have not. I have never had that experience. I, I wish I would. I've, I've, I've said all along, you know, if anybody wants to show me the real stuff or even leak some of it to me, I'd be, be glad to put it out there for them, uh, you know, and people will, of course, just accuse me of having faked the data. But, uh, you know, if they ever want to show me the real pictures of, um, of bars, I'd be glad to see it. I have not had that experience. However, Richard has, and it, it, it brings up a kind of an interesting story that, that I would like to tell, uh, if you don't mind, it could t- and take a couple minutes on Please. this one is that there Please. was a, yeah. an event we did uh, near JPL in Pasadena in the uh, late 1990s, and it was after the Pathfinder landing. And you know, 
one of the things with, with Pathfinder that's really interesting is that if you look at pictures from the, the Viking landers, um, what you see is um, you see that the pictures are very clear, very concise, they're very easy to work with, they're very high-quality images, whereas um, the images that you got from, from Pathfinder are terrible. And the only conclusion that I could reach is that, is that uh, after, you know, 20 years, our camera technology has suddenly declined by orders of magnitude because they're just really terrible. So if anytime you want to zoom up on any specific rock or object and take a, take a look at it, what you can see very clearly is that, you know, it, it simply isn't uh, of high quality at all. So... Mm -hmm. um, when we were doing this event near JPL, basically trying to get a NASA space about it, doing something in their own backyard, where Richard's doing his presentation, he gets done, you know, there's a break in the middle, and Richard's sitting there autographing books and talking to people, and this guy comes up, you know, wearing a, a business suit and glasses, and he has in his hand about six eight by ten glossies, and they say JPL at the top, you know, they, they're definitely all official looking, and he hands them to Richard. And they are, they are pictures of the Pathfinder landing site, but they are so much better than what's been posted on the web. It's, it's not even describable. They're absolutely crystal clear. They're fantastic pictures. They're showing stuff that clearly is artificial mechanical debris. And, and he even says to Richard at one point, you know, we were wondering when you were going to spot this one. And he says, you know, look. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's my favorite line of that. It goes, we were wondering when you were going to spot this one. And he goes, well, I still have it, but now I'm going to go look for it. <laughs> but he says, you know, Richard says, can I have these? And the guy says, yeah, you can, you can have them, but, you know, you didn't get them from, you didn't get them from me. And, and, Rich, and Richard said, okay, great. But then the guy goes, you know, wait a minute. Actually, there's a stamp on the back, which has got my ID number on them. Why don't you, you give them back to me, and I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, Ink gloss over that with a with a sharpie or something and block those out. So Richard hands him the pictures back. There's a bunch of people around. We're all talking, and about a minute or two later, Richard says to me, "Where'd that guy go?" And I look around and he's gone. And he took the pictures yeah. and walked away. So he showed him the pictures, but he, and and he might have been able to keep them, but he made the mistake of giving them back. And that's one thing that that I was I, I learned from that is that if anybody ever does flip me anything like that, I'm not giving it back. <laughs> I'm not giving it back okay. for anything. So, I guess you know, it, it would be wonderful to have really, really clear photographs of these uh, images from the from the uh, from the actual ground. Uh, that, yeah, so amazing. Yeah, I mean, well, what, uh, that, what that shows is that, is that there's much better imagery than we've been allowed to see from Pathfinder, and if that's the case, you must also presume that the, there's much better versions of the imagery from, you know, Spirit and Curiosity and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Opportunity as well. Interesting. Um, to my view, and, and I want your opinion about this, it seems like there's a pre-dynastic Egyptian flair to various regions of Mars. And uh, in your new book, uh, Ancient Aliens on Mars 2, there is, uh, uh, there is the crowned face, which has kind of a, he's wearing a crown and, there, and there's a face. But there's also the Eye of Horus, which is a new yeah. uh, image that is very, very interesting. Let's, let's start with the crown face. What can you tell us about that face? Because, I mean, obviously, if a satellite's taken a photograph of this from, I don't know what it is, 100 miles above the atmosphere or more, yeah, 
and a couple hundred miles. And it must yeah. be it must be massive. It must be massive. And it and 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 to actually um, have a face of that size and to to to, to create and uh, manage the proportions so it actually looks like a face is a feat into itself. Uh, but what can you tell us about that? The crown face. Well, unfortunately, I don't agree that the crown face is the crown face. So I'm not. Oh. I'm not the best person to talk to you about this. It is in the book okay. because it has been very popular on the web. It's been something where people have said that they believe that this is supposed to be the image of a of a human face with a crown. Uh, it basically is part of, of a, a ridge. It's like kind of cut into the side of a, a ridge on, on a mountainside. And I, you know, I, I respect the people that make the argument that it's, that it's definitely meant to be some sort of edifice that you would see. Certainly with mm-hmm. the face on Mars, there is a, a precedence of a facial-type display. But the, thing that, that I, the things that I question about it is that it's kind of in isolation and there's other stuff, too. There's a lot of people that think that there are pictograms on Mars along the same lines as NASCA. And um, I'm, you know, I'm not completely dismissive of that, but what gives me pause is the fact that, like the so-called crown face, these objects are all in isolation. If there was a bunch of these pictogramish style, styled, um, you know, objects and, and formations... In, in a group together, in a cluster, like the way they are at NASCA, then I would be much more inclined to say, okay, I think you guys are onto something. Whereas with this thing, it's kind of isolated. But it's, a, it's what looks like the face of a, of a young human male with some kind of crown on his head, and, and it's kind of cut into this, this ridge. But it, it, to me, it only really stands out when you, when you actually you know, create a little bit of contrast in the area that you're thinking looks like a face. And then it looks a little bit more like a face. I think that it, it kind of, to me, it tends to blend into the natural background. And in my opinion, it's, it's really close to, um, it really looks a lot like the, the natural background. So I'm not, I'm not too sure about that you're one. Not convinced, but, you're not convinced about that one, yeah. No, I'm not convinced, but I'm not dismissive either. I mean, I'm not going to say it, it, that, that it doesn't, it, it's not real. I'm just saying I don't, I, I don't think that that's really very convincing. I think there's other stuff on Mars that is more convincing. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, the Eye of Horus now. Which doesn't mean we can't talk about the Eye of Horus. Okay, now the Eye of Horus, (laughs) the Eye of Horus, uh, and I'm looking at your book right now. We actually had on our Facebook page uh, one of the researchers, and I I think his name is Gary. uh, I'm not sure, uh, as I think of it now, who, who posted it. Uh, but yeah. he actually shows some close-ups of what looks like an entranceway into this massive. Well, I guess it could be considered artificial. It look, it kind of looks artificial in this photograph. But well, what, what, what is your opinion of it? And, and would do? Did you title it "Eye of Horus" or was it presented to you as "Eye of Horus"? Actually, it's been presented as uh, the "Eye of Ra" or the "Eye of Horus" by. Um, Oh, a guy named Steve. Oh, geez, I'm sorry. His name's escaping me right now. But he's written a really good book called Chauvet Dreams or Chauvet Dreams, which mm-hmm. is uh, a book about the Chauvet cave art, which actually shows the one of the earliest depictions from 30,000 years ago of, of the Eye of Horus. Um, I think your name's Steve, Steve Meads is what you're Steve referring Meads. to. Steve Meads. I'm sorry. Steve Meads. Yeah, sorry about that, Steve. Yeah. But um, I didn't come prepared with my list of name checkings. i, I got to do this. But... <laughs> but 
this one, well, no, I mean, it is important for these people to get credit because I, you know, and I've had a couple things, uh, occasions where I've, I've talked to some people that have, you know, written me, some of them kind of pissed off. I said, yeah, I, I saw your work. I liked it. I wanted to put it in the book, but I could never track down, you know, I, I couldn't track down who the originator of it was, who the first person was. So once they tell me, then I correct it. And I want to make sure that everybody knows who was the first to spot it. Now, this gentleman, Gary, um, I, he's, I know him uh, fairly well. I don't associate with him anymore. He's a little bit, um, he's got some issues, but that doesn't mean that what he's found isn't legitimate. So mm-hmm. I decided to go ahead and go with the Eye of Horus or the Eye of Ra or whatever you want to call it. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't fit my criteria in the one sense, but if you look at the overall image swath that it's on, it, it is the only thing in that image that appears to be possibly artificial. And at first, my inclination would be, well, look, if it's an isolation like that um, and there's nothing else around it that could potentially be artificial, I'm kind of like not inclined to buy into it. But it does bear a striking resemblance to the, the Eye of Horus or the Eye of Ra. It, it, mm-hmm. Some people have compared that to the, the human pineal gland, um, you know, cross-section of the brain. And then as I looked at this object and I could see where it had eroded and pieces of it had sort of, um, collapsed or fallen away, what you see very clearly all around it and on it is what appears to be structural beams, cross beams and members, you know, at 90 degree angles to each other. And they're not at, at 90 degrees to the image, they're at 90 degrees locally to the object. They're, they're against mm-hmm. the scan lines of the object. And that's when you usually know that you're looking at something real. Also, it's not, I didn't have to enhance these images or enlarge them very much because the stuff is just it just sticks out. I mean, it's, it's, it's way above the limits of resolution. So when I see cross beams and, and things like that, I, I say to myself, okay, look, we've got artificial kind of a mesh structure here. And then at the base of it, yeah, there is a, um, an, an area that looks at, well, it doesn't look like, it is an entrance. It's, it's an entrance underneath this thing. There's a hollowed out kind of cave. There are two side walls. Above that are some very interesting um, Again, beams, girders, wires, tubes, whatever you want to call them, that appear to be artificial. And it certainly looks like you could just walk right up to this thing, go into that entrance, and go in and, and do your business, you know, whatever that might be. And, and to me, as I look at it, I'd say to myself, I believe that this is an artificial structure on the planet Mars. And it does appear to bear more than a passing resemblance to the, um, the Eye of Ra. So... When you look at that, you have to say that there must be some connection. There must be some intent behind that design. It Again, to me, these artificial structures that I spot, they seem to be, um, and I talk about in the books, they seem to be, be you know, designed to catch attention and, mm-hmm. and to, to basically take that form that we're so familiar with from ancient Egypt that seems to go back to the Chauvet cave paintings way, you know, way, way back 30,000 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. it, it almost seems like it's a universal symbol that's been with us from, from very, very ancient times and, and maybe even, you know, from Mars itself. So to me, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a fascinating object and one that I really, really love. I can't find any reference to its scale, but it must be a monstrous uh, uh, edifice. Uh, yeah, I mean, is it like... With the, uh, with the MRO uh, images, this is from an MRO 
image. It's, it's not that easy for me to determine the scale, but we are talking a couple, probably a couple miles across. So it's a, it's a big, big bullet. And Do you? Would be, oh, it's, it, it, it looks, it's weird, but you know, it looks like a temple. It looks like the kind of thing you would build as some sort of temple. And, and there's definitely an entrance there where you could go walking up into it. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, are you of the belief that uh, these uh, megalithic builders uh, were able to build on such a monstrous scale because the face on Mars is miles and miles across, uh, and, and as well as the DNM pyramids is, is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you uh, are you under the belief that the uh, gravitational fields were much less dense that allowed them to move these uh, uh, stones and 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 whatever else they used to build these? temples was in place the gravity was a lot less or something well you know that's interesting that's an interesting question there's two ways you can look at it you this was done with conventional technology like the kind of technology that we would use now and what we're limited by now is power in other words how much energy we can put into something and our ability to lift an object into space or you know, a mile, mile and a half on top of a massive pyramid is restricted by the amount of energy that it takes to do that and the amount of energy it takes to build the cranes and things that would have to do it. So that's our problem. Uh, again, like you said, gravity. You still have a, a technology where the effects of gravity were negated using some sort of spin energy fields uh, is one way that it's been, you know, described as doing it. That certainly fits within the hyperdimensional physics model that I'm, I'm certainly an advocate of. It could be mm-hmm. that, that the ancients understood how to use sound and vibration to move things that we cannot move now and, again, to limit that. Or it could be, um, it could simply be that back in those days, millions of years ago, that there were different laws of physics in the solar system. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, again, going back to my second book, The Choice, the, the concept is, is, that, is that the energy that's in the solar system, the life energy and the physical energies that, that you're able to manipulate are created by the planets themselves, by the spin energy of the planets. So if we had two more massive super-Earth type bodies, one in the orbit where Mars is today, which was blown up and destroyed the civilization on Mars, and one in the asteroid belt, then we would have, theoretically, more, quote, life energy, which means that life could grow bigger, hence the dinosaurs and so forth on the Earth, or it could also mean that, that, that te- you had more technological energy available to you. Maybe, maybe a nuclear weapon, you know, gave a different yield back then. So, again, that's, that kind of goes back to that whole idea that this is theoretically possible. So, to my mind, I think you're looking at two different things. I think you're looking at the fact that we simply were smarter back then and were able to build these objects on other planets at a, at a much larger scale, that we knew how to manipulate technologies and energies better, or simply that there was a- actually more energy available to us to do these kinds of monumental architecture, that these, these examples of monumental architecture that we see on other planets. Mm, okay. I, I want you to, if you would, speculate on the humanoid. Uh, I think I heard you a couple of years ago uh, say that uh, you believe that it was a, an Anunnaki type of being that came to Earth from Mars uh, and um, uh, were the ones who were the pre-dynastic people. Can you tell us a little bit about 
your theories behind these these uh, uh, I'm just going to call them uh, megalithic builders. Yeah, um, I am inclined to think that way. And again, this is speculation because all this happened so long ago that we we never really will you know be able to figure it out. But the the direction that I've been leaning for a number of years is that what we're looking at here is technology and artifacts that are left over from you know an ancient very advanced human civilization from millions of years ago or humanoid mm-hmm. civilization that that probably is related to Sitchin's Anunnaki now the interesting thing about the Anunnaki concept and the the, the way that Sitchin describes the meaning of the word Nibiru is he calls it the planet of crossing. That's what he says Nibiru actually means. And when they say crossing, most people assume, you know, I think like my buddy Jason Martell and others, assume that when he talks about crossing, they're talking about crossing somewhere in the sky, like like the Grand Cross in the sky or crossing in front of Orion or something along those, those lines. And um, in reality, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think that the crossing, the word crossing could refer to the crossing between them and us. In other words, a genetic manipulation. So mm. what I suspect is that Mars might possibly actually be the root source of Nibiru. In other words, Nibiru might in fact be Mars. It might not be a separate brown dwarf star with moons around it and that kind of thing that people have speculated. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and, and so so and this is something Richard and I have discussed at length and kind of kind of agree with that you you can't necessarily take Sitchin literally. You have to like you have to you have to think of it me- metaphorically a little bit. So when they talk about the planet of the crossing, I suspect that that means Mars, where perhaps in a lab, you know, our, the Anunnaki DNA was crossed with human DNA or Neanderthal DNA to make us, to make, to make modern man. Now, again, the interesting thing about all that at the end of the I talk about those speculations. I actually put in the comic from 1958 that was created by Jack Kirby. And... Um, at, at the time, um, he had written a story, and the stars, and it was about these explorers that go to Mars, and they discover a human-looking face on the planet Mars. They, one of the astronauts falls in through the eyeball, the right eyeball socket, which, in fact, if you look at the real face, that's the one that's most obvious human and, and looks exactly like a human eye. And he falls in and he begins to have these visions of, of the civilization that used to exist on Mars. And it was a civilization of these peaceful giants that lived on the planet Mars with super advanced technology. Then they were attacked by an external force, which appears to be mechanical. It looks as though their machines got too smart and turned on them. And, um, and as a last-ditch effort to save their own civilization and win the war, they had to blow up a planet in the asteroid, where the asteroid belt is now between Mars and Jupiter, and that that devastated the surface of Mars. So it's basically exactly the story, the idea that I kind of laid out in my head. But it, it all fits together in the sense that, that if you actually were able to do this, that if you then found that Mars was no longer habitable, let's say you moved underground for a while and tried to live underground, um, you would eventually have to say, well, the only place left to go is Earth. So how do you adapt an organism you know, from a Martian environment to the Earth's environment. And the best way to do that is to crossbreed yourselves, to basically, you know, genetically crossbreed and intermix the DNA. And that's how you would adapt to the planet Earth. So it's almost, to me, it completely fits the idea that they would take, 
you know, the Neanderthals and cross, cross it with the Anunnaki, and what you would get is something along the lines of us. We're a lot bigger than the Neanderthals, but we're not nearly as big as the Anunnaki. So we're kind of in the middle. And, you know, that would be the best way to adapt to the planet Earth. So in, in terms of speculation, that's pretty much the model that I'm operating on at this point. Uh, and, you know, that, I, I think there's, there's kind of a growing amount of evidence to support that idea. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate that explanation because everybody has a different explanation for the Earth. Uh, you know, they, some people run off of Sitchin. Uh, some people feel that you know we're hybrids from another species and this and that. So, well, it's always, you know, it's always if, if you look at if you look at us, we're extremely poorly adapted to live on this planet. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious we are not from the Earth. I mean, if I was just at the the Contact in the Desert conference in uh, in Joshua Tree a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago now. Great experience, fantastic experience, and. You know, I, I was out on the Anunnaki panel, ironically, where somebody where somebody took a picture of what appears to be an alien standing behind Eric Von Daniken. But, but you know, that's awful. No, seriously, it kind of looks like an alien standing there. And, um, you know, I got sunburned. And if you think about it, it's like, really, if, if we're from Earth, why do we get sunburned? Why, why, why would I get sunburned? Why was my skin so pale that I can get burned by the sun and, and can't be out yeah. in the sun without you know, without sunblock on. We have to invent sunblock 40,000 years into our history to be able to survive outdoors. Again, why do mm-hmm. we need sunglasses? I'm walking around with sunglasses. If our eyes really are, are you know, supposedly evolved here on Earth, why are we so poorly adapted to this planet? And the fact is, if you look at, uh, you know, and, even, and again, even, even black people can get sunburned. It's not like, you know, it's not like their dark skin protects them that much. So it's like we have characteristics uh, actual physical characteristics that are more akin to the environment, I think, on Mars, if Mars was once habitable, than they are uh, adapted for the Earth. I mean, there'd be a little less sunlight, it wouldn't be as bright on Mars, all that kind of stuff. So it's like, we, we probably, if we had atmosphere, if we had an atmosphere that was breathable, we'd, we'd probably be pretty damn comfortable on Mars and wouldn't get mm. sunburned. And, you know, and so it's like, if you think about it, we, we really do seem to be very, very poorly adapted to this planet. And that's another indication to me that we came from somewhere else. I never thought about that. that that's really interesting. Um, I want to touch on um, Mars uh, a little bit more uh, quickly. Um, your book, the new book, Ancient Aliens on Mars, has some of the most convincing evidence of machine parts that I've ever seen. And uh, on my Facebook page, I've actually posted a couple of uh, pieces uh, of, of, of this machinery. What, what, would have, what do you think happened on the surface? Was there... Was was there a collision uh, that devastated the surface to the point where it would rip machines apart like this? Because I, I I mean these images are so convincing to me, and they're so detailed. Uh, you know, from a, a, a some kind of a press that pressed the metal in place or whatever. But uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I've never seen such great photographs of, of machine parts. So what what happened? What happened to the surface? <laughs> Well, you know, that's, that's a good question. Um, and again, I cannot take credit for most of these machine parts. They've been found by other researchers. And again, I try to, you know, try to make sure everybody gets full credit for stuff that they mm-hmm. found. I mean, there's, yeah, there's cowbells. There's, there's things that look like plates. There's turbochargers. There's heat exchangers. There's, you know, um, 
I don't know, there's one thing I like to call a phaser because it looks like Captain Kirk dropped his phaser, you know, on, on the surface before he left. There's, there's flex shaft couplers. There's all kinds of mechanical looking stuff all over the surface. And what I think happened is it goes back to this, this devastation of the planet because what you had was, was Mars was in a tidal lock relationship with this much larger world, which I like to call Maldek. And what that means is, is that just like the moon, it was always showing the same face to its parent planet. And it was very, very close to its parent planet. And somehow, some way, whether it was the war that's depicted in the Face on Mars comic or whether the, there was some sort of natural catastrophe where the super Earth exploded, you know, Mars was devastated with debris. And that's why there's the so-called line of dichotomy on Mars. Below the line of dichotomy, mostly in the southern hemisphere, you see... Uh, all this debris is spattered onto the planet. There's so many craters, they literally can't be counted. So Mars was just devastated with this. You know, half, half the atmosphere was ripped away in this one moment. And at, at, according to the, the theory that, that Hoagland and I came up with, which we call the Mars Tidal Model, meaning that there were tides, that there must have been massive oceans on the Tharsis bulge and the Arabia bulge because they're, they're tidal bulges on the planet Mars. And so what happened then is all that water, once, once the gravitational lock was released and the planet was hit, all that water just pushed north and scoured the northern surface, whereas the southern surface was completely blasted with all of this debris from the other, the other world that exploded. And so the civilization that was there just got completely wiped out either in, you know, in massive meteor impacts or in, um, in massive flooding. And, and the, these sort of catastrophic, devastating, biblical-style floods would have just picked up you know, machinery, debris, buildings, and just tossed them everywhere. And I think that you see a lot of evidence for that uh, all over the surface of Mars, and that's what we're seeing. I and mean, we're basically seeing the remnants of this extreme devastation. Now, there's also the, the possibility that, that whenever that event happened, that that there were survivors and that they rebuilt their civilization to a certain point. And, you know, after it reached, uh, after it reached a point where they simply couldn't go on any longer, they, um, they had to, uh, you know, pick up and move to the earth and they just left everything behind to sort of decay and, and, you know, erode. And that's what we're finding is just their leftover machinery, their junk that they left behind when they moved to earth. So it's, it's kind of mm -hmm. twofold. One of them is, is that you've got this, these devastating events that probably happened in a single day. And then, you know, over the millions of years, this stuff that was buried under mud and silt has sort of worked its way back to the surface, the way rocks do here on Earth. Mm -hmm. And the other is that you're just looking at stuff that they just taught. I don't, we don't need, I don't need this turbocharger anymore. You know, I'm just going to leave it here and we're going to go to Earth. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you so, know, yeah, so I, got, I got turbochargers. I got, I love Kirk's phaser. That's my, that's my favorite one. <laughs> Yeah, you got uh, uh, pretty much enough to put an engine together. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, yeah you got, what you is got the, a, and it's really interesting, too, because, because I have a friend named Kimberly Reck who's, who's a gearhead. She rebuilds all kinds of cars, Mustangs and stuff. And, you know, I always send her pictures of this stuff. She'd go, I'd go, what is that? And she'd go, oh, that's, a, that's a piston head. That's a heat sink. You know, that's a, heat, that's a fan. That's a, that's a, you know, um, that's a turbocharger. It's, she just would just instantly come up with explanations for this stuff, so. And in uh, your estimation, and also uh, Richard Hoagland's, is that this happened millions of years ago? Well, yeah, I think probably. You really, you really can't put a date on it, except that we know it didn't happen real recently. But, you know, what's really interesting is that if you look, look at the orbit of Mars, um, 
Mars orbit is extremely eccentric. It's the second most eccentric orbit in the solar system. Mercury is the only one that's more eccentric. And in the exploded planet hypothesis, this model that Dr. Tom Van Flander came up with back in uh, back earlier in the decade that I write about in my in my second book, The Choice, um, you know, basically they're, they're escaped moons of of two planets. Mercury is in that, in that model is an escaped moon of Venus and. Mars is a leftover devastated moon of this planet that I like to call Maldek that exploded around the orbit of Mars, where, where the orbit of Mars is today. And, but the reason it's so elliptical and it varies so much is because it was basically knocked out of its orbit and it hasn't normalized or circularized yet. But there was a really interesting paper which um, w- recently which said that, you know, tracing the orbit of Mars back, that it was perfectly, almost perfectly circular about 1.35 million years ago, so 1,350,000 years ago. So that might have been when it happened. Um, it might have been 65 million years ago when Tycho was created and the dinosaurs were wiped out, or it might have been even more recent than that. So, you mm-hmm. know, I, I don't know what kind of time frame we're looking at, but again, the, the time scale doesn't matter because it's, it's, that's a second-level question. You know, how, how the planet exploded is a second-level question. To me, time scale is not really that important. It's, it's what we're seeing that's important. It would be so amazing if we could actually get on the surface, a man could get on the surface, or an artificial uh, uh, robotic instrument and be able to actually determine. Now, from everything I've read from you and Richard Hoagland and some other people, NASA has already done all this. (laughs) They've already found all these structures, and they have archives of it and they're just saying okay look what we found and they've probably known about it for decades but Mm -hmm. if it ever came to light it'd be wonderful well Um, wonderful for some of us but you know not probably not so much for other people yeah i guess according to brookings it would freak some certain religions out and uh, uh, It, it would yeah drive us all crazy yeah that was all crazy. In the, in the time we have left, Mike, I would like to talk about a big interest of mine, and that is the moon Phobos. And um, uh, years ago, the astrophysicist, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but I'm going to say it anyhow, Skar- Skarlovsky, uh, studied the, uh, the moon Phobos and came to the conclusion that based on its orbit, it was an artificial planet. Yeah. Now, that is an amazing declaration, uh, and, and I recently read a, a short article that in 1960, Dr. Fred Singer, who was a special advisor to Eisenhower, uh, uh, actually made the same claim to him that, the, that it was artificial, that they had, uh, the Americans had studied it, and uh, uh, well, if Russians it is man-made, the same thing. The Russians said the same thing in the late '80s too. So, can add them to the fire. Did they? That, that the argument. Yes. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. If if it is artificial, which it doesn't. I mean, it, it's hard to to conceptualize something at that size and that scale being artificial because the the amount of uh, engineering. Uh, uh, along with the science that would be required to uh, create an engine system to power it, its movement would be beyond anything we could conceive of. But uh, 
you you talk a little bit about Phobos. Uh, what is your estimation on on that? And uh, do you have any theories behind what it could possibly be? Well, I mean, I think that, that you got the two arguments, which is that that the orbit it, it's in is incredibly convenient, and um, you know the fact that it's in an, an equatorial orbit is uh, rather extraordinary. And and basically, yeah, that 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 scientist essentially concluded that it's just not possible for it to have happened by accident. That these that Phobos ends up in this this perfectly um, almost perfectly equatorial orbit around the planet that it would almost have to have been placed there. And it does appear to be a body that's had substantial modification to it. I mean, in Chapter 1, I go over a lot of the, the myths and, and uh, mysteries about Phobos, the fact that it's basically hollow inside, and that that has created quite a bit of controversy over the years. And, um, you know, I recently got an email from one of my detractors who, who talked about the fact that they found that, the, that the, there was some, you know, voids and so forth inside the, the comet, uh, recent comet that they just... Uh, zoomed up to, I forget the name of it. And uh, I, I was thinking to myself, really, you don't understand the difference between comets and asteroids. Okay, I, I don't know what I could do for somebody like that. But uh, the bottom line is that asteroids are not, through, the, through the, the, the concept of how they're formed, they should not have voids in them. But Phobos has large room scale, like 200 foot across condos inside of it and it, it has this incredibly weird looking right angular 90 degree mesh on the outside as if it was assembled together with some sort of you know how they, they use mesh sometimes in concrete they'll have this metal kind of rebar that goes in there it's a, it's a square mesh pattern and they'll pour the concrete in it almost looks like it's that kind of a pattern on Phobos and it, the fact that it's you know it's estimated mass is not what they would expect and that it, it at the very least what Phobos does is it contradicts previously existing concepts of how asteroids are formed, and it, it also appears to be in an orbit that is just way too coincidental to have been accidental. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's essentially what we're looking at. And, and then there's that pesky monolith on top of it, which, which Buzz Aldrin used to talk about. And then when they went and took pictures of, um, of the so-called monolith, you know, they ended up finding out, well, gee whiz, it looks exactly like the monolith from 2001. So I don't know what else you can say about it than that. It's, it's pretty incredible. What does Buzz Aldrin have to say about the uh, Phobos? Did he actually describe it in some well, way? Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he talked about it. He he, in 2009, in an interview on C-SPAN, I think it was, he went on and on about what, you know, there's this monolith on Phobos, and it's really, really strange, and it looks like it's probably artificial, and I think we need to land and, and go take a look oh at it. Oh, my God. At, at that time, it looked like kind of a block, but then when they took better pictures of it, and again, these are in the book, um, Ancient Aliens on Mars 2, when they took better pictures with Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, it, it looked exactly like the buried monolith on the moon from 2001, except that was black, and this appears to be white. So it looks like there's something on there, and, and last time I checked, the Canadians were talking about a mission to uh, to go there and actually you know land on the surface of of uh, Phobos and, and take a look at this thing, mm-hmm. but uh, to this point they actually had not uh, not done that yet and and their their mission was funded and then all of a sudden it wasn't funded so it's kind of like NASA was like oh no I don't I don't think you're gonna land on. You're gonna land there just, on, on Phobos to take a look. So, interesting. I want to remind our guests who, who are listening that you can um, you can call in, and uh, uh, we'll, we're going to take a couple of questions here in a minute. The number to call in is three four seven 
That's 347-826-9565. That's 347-826-9565. And when you when I call on you, just give me your first name and where you're calling from. Press the number one on your phone, and uh, I will call you. So, uh, uh, in the time we have left, let's take uh, let's take a couple of questions. Let's start with uh, uh, you. Would, would you. Do you have a question for us? Hello. Sounds like he's getting out of okay. his car, and the, the beepers. He must be getting there. out of his car. Um, here's here's one from Facebook. Um, uh, who are the Earth uh, aliens? <laughs> I'm not sure what he means by that. Who are, who the, are the Earth aliens? Well, you know, again, as we talked about earlier, it's, it's distinctly possible that we're we are all aliens. That we're not really from this planet. I mean, again, we don't we're not really very well adapted for it. Um, you know, we may be a cross a crossbreeding experiment between whoever used to live the, the giants that used to live on Mars, the, the Anunnaki, and the Neanderthals that were here. And uh, I don't think anybody really knows. In fact, I read an article this morning that, um, that they're now saying that, that human beings appear to have interbred with some sort of um, uh, hominid back in, you know, 10, 25, 30,000 years ago that we didn't even know existed. So there may be a completely new um, type of human that we didn't even know previously know used to even exist on this planet. So things seem to change on a, on a really regular basis there. Hmm. That is that's curious. Um, let's see if we can get this gentleman again. Um, hello, do you have a question for Mike? Huh. That's very interesting. Here's another one um, from Facebook. Oh, I, I don't know. He must be in the car, or maybe he's lis- just listening. And his and his phone's on um, uh, on pause. Um, he's this this person, Sandy from New Mexico, says. Uh, it, she has read that it's been uh, explained to her that NASA exploded a number of bombs on the face of Mars, and that's what destroyed what we thought was the original face of Mars. What do you have to say about that? That's ridiculous. That's, that's, that's John Brandenburg's idea, and it's just uh, it's just ridiculous. That's not the case. You know that. Look, there were people that thought that the face on Mars was was you know basically 100% symmetrical, and it was going to be it was supposed to be a human face. Richard Hoagland, I think, argued compellingly as far back as 1992 that it might be half human, half feline, which is a, a distinct possibility, or it's simply that that the right side of the face, as we view it, is more eroded than the left side of the face, and and the the mm-hmm. reason for that is there actually is a very predominant wind direction at, at Sidonia, which is uh, as you look at a picture of the face on Mars, look straight down at it, is actually right to left, and and you know I mean I've studied the face on Mars up close. There's a lot of structural stuff on it. There's pictures from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that are in both books, the uh, Ancient Aliens on Mars One and Ancient Aliens on Mars Two. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's definitely structural stuff there. There's absolutely, again, beam skirters, the kind of support structure you'd expect to see. And the reality is, is that there's no evidence that it's been nuked or anything like that. That's just a, you know, again, with all due respect to Dr. Brandenburg, that's just a dumb idea that got floated. And I believe he's the one who originally floated it a long time ago because oh, okay. when they first got the Mars Global Surveyor images, they couldn't, they couldn't get it right in their heads you know, that it was the same thing from, from the Viking data. But a big part of that problem was is that the pictures were not taken from directly overhead. So the orthographic correction, the, the, or, the, the map projection that they did was grossly distorted. 
And so they didn't take into account that NASA would deliberately do the improper orthorectification of the images, which they did, and make it look mm-hmm. like it's not symmetrical and not a face. So they had to come up with some explanation to support their stance because, you know, I don't know. It just, it's, it's, a lo- it's a story I've heard it many times. Short answer is mm. no, that's not what happened. Are you saying that, uh, did I hear you correctly, that, you're, that you have imagery of the face that actually shows superstructure and beams and things? In the, oh, in yeah. The, in the, uh, yeah, that's right. If you go to the photo, the, the photo albums that I've got on the web that we talked about earlier, um, yeah, you can very clearly, there's an area um, to the right side, on the right side of the face, it's just to the right of the so-called nostrils and the nose, and it's mm-hmm. about the size of a sports arena, and it, you can see that the roof of this area has collapsed inward, and all around it is bent over superstructure, and, and again, beams and structural supports that look, as I get into a comparison in the book, that look exactly the same as the uh, roof of a collapsed sports arena in, in uh, New Jersey from years ago. You can, you can basically see exactly the same thing. So, yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. there's that, that kind of evidence. And, and then there's is that, the infrared mm-hmm. also. Is that Sorry, is that are, are you are you referring to imagery that's in ancient aliens on Mars two or one? In both. Or the, there's, in there's, both. Yeah, it's in both. Because because what happened was is that I I'd, I'd shown this a little bit in ancient aliens on Mars one, and then in the meantime I discovered that there was a, a another newer image of the same area from Mars reconnaissance orbiter. So in other words, they went back and took a picture of this specific part of the face because they wanted to see it in, in you know more detail. And and again, it supports this. I mean, it looks to me like, again, I like to call it the sports arena because it looks like a collapse, exactly like the, the, the collapsed roof of a, of a sports arena that, that got too much snow on top of it and fell in on itself um, in New Jersey. And they look almost virtually exactly the same. And, and I think That's the reason is, is because they are the same. There was a hollowed out area on the face. You know? And I remember, these things were enormous and are enormous, and they would be the ideal, you know, the, Richard's model, Hogan's model, is that they're... Um, what they call arcologies, which means that they would be architectural ecologies, self-contained structures that people would live in. So, mm. you know, maybe somebody was maybe somebody was playing a concert and the roof came in. Wow. There are fans that wouldn't mind the roof caving in on if they were. I don't know. I'll say that. <laughs> that is that. You know, it's funny because uh, with that in mind. Uh, I never thought that uh, – I hadn't heard that the theory of the face on Mars was that, that it was a actual dwelling place um, because I don't know yeah, of any but, reports of entrance and out, uh, or entranceways in any section. Have any entranceways been found on that? Um, no, I, I've never seen anything that looks like an entranceway on the face. But uh, what, what you do look – we did have was this episode, and I cover this in the um, – I cover this in 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 uh, the, the book, the the new in Ancient Aliens on Mars too, was the the Sidonia, the thermal infrared imagery from um, the early 2000s from the Themis instrument, when it was properly processed, showed that underneath the monuments there is what appears to be a very very vast cityscape, complete with what look like transportation tubes, like tunnels and and or tunnels, you know, like they have in uh, they have in the, the London to Paris tunnel. So um, I think you could definitely could get from one place to another using some of these transportation systems. Interesting. Yeah, those tubes. We, haven't, yeah. we don't have time to talk about this, the tubes, uh, but those, those are another fascinating subject. Um, Mike Barra, the book is 
the ancient ancient aliens on Mars 2 by Mike Barra, my guest today. Um, in the in the minutes we have left, do you want to tell us uh, where you're going to be uh, the next week, the next month, uh, so that people that are listening can go hear you live? What, what's your well, What are you coming up with? The next really big thing I'm going to do is I'm going to open up the MUFON San Luis Obispo, Obispo um, chapter. is going to open up in uh, November 2nd. That's the next big speaking engagement I have. Um, so I'll be doing that one. It'll be the first ever gathering out there in, uh, in, in San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara area. So I have any, anybody in that area to come out and see me. Um, I got the Conscious Life Expo in L.A. in February, and you know, mm-hmm. hopefully I'll be doing the... Um, the, uh, oh, you'll be at the. Uh, by the way, my listeners, uh, Mike is uh, slotted to be in San Francisco, uh, April twenty fifth, twenty fifteen, at the San Mattel, uh Conference Center. And I can also say, uh, without hesitation, we have just signed George Nori to be the awesome. moderator of a special panel, and Mike will be on that panel. So. Um, and, and I'll be making more announcements as that event comes up. But uh, April 25th, 2015, look for Mike Barra, and you can see him uh, uh, personally there. Uh, I don't think you'll have a book out by then, will you, Mike? That's that's a that's a short period of time to write a new book. I should actually, I should, I should have another one out. I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna work get working on ancient aliens and secret societies pretty soon, which may actually may be more interesting to you because it'll be more about. You know uh, about the 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 uh, things like the Assyrian and the walls and the and the connections between the Martian civilization and the civilization on the moon and our own ancient civilizations. It'll be more along those lines. So you may that you may actually find that one even more interesting than, than that. Uh, I, well, we'll definitely have you back if when that when that comes out. That that sounds that sounds fascinating. Again, hey, thanks for joining us, Mike. It's it's been a pleasure having you and. Um, we look forward to uh, to seeing you again on wherever you're at. I'm, I'm sure you'll probably be on another episode of Ancient Aliens before. Uh, well, too long, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get into season seven because I was still under contract for uncovering aliens for Discovery, so I didn't make season seven. But um, I will be doing some Hangar One episodes this next upcoming season of Hangar One on the History Channel and H2. So look for me there. Fantastic. All right. Thanks again. Um, Everybody, uh, join us again. Uh, coming up next week, we have author uh, Colin uh, Andrew Collins. He is going to be speaking on the Gobekli Tepe ruin, and he is going to tell us uh, about uh, some new discoveries, including what he believes. You got a friend in me. Celebrate friendship and beyond during the first ever Pixar Fest with the all-new Pixar-themed fireworks spectacular and your favorite park parades. Celebrate from April 13th through September 3rd, only at Disneyland Resort. Visit Disneyland.com for details. There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. you got a friend in me. Entertainment subject to change without notice. Is the Garden of Eden. So, uh, don't miss that program. And thanks very much. And
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. 